You're listening to KPDO 89.3 Pescadero Radio, The Shields and Talbot Show. You're here with us today to listen to Chrissy Orangio, episode one in our Voices of Bay Area Educator series, where we will be interviewing educators in the Bay Area to get their story around what it's like to teach in the quarantine in this pandemic with everything that they have going on and also how they continue the work around equity and social justice at their school site. Thank you for tuning in. So Chrissy, thank you so much for number one, agreeing to um, do this interview. We met you in our cohort at San Francisco State in 2016. And we obviously have a collection of information uh, about you, but to kind of retell the story for everyone that's listening in, um, where did you go to university um, and your experiences in your 20s um, working in the natural sciences? And then how did you end up at the San Francisco State 2016 teacher cohort? Oh boy. Um, Well, I, so I went to, I grew up in Georgia and I ended up going to a private college in North Carolina called Elon University, um, where I like accidentally started studying environmental science um, and really wanted to travel abroad. Um, My junior year, that was like a really typical experience at Elon and often there were scholarships available um, so that people could go abroad. And I remember I wanted to do this like hands-on environmental project in the Turks and Caicos for a semester. And my advisor was like, sounds like you want to go to the beach. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, kind of do. And she's like, nope. Um, But there are these other programs you can do where you will actually be doing research and like actually dedicate yourself to learning stuff. Um, So she didn't really let me go to Turks and Caicos, but I found this other program in South Africa. And I spent a semester studying abroad with 20 other people in small close quarters, traveling around South Africa, living in Kruger Park. Um, And that is really what sparked my sort of um, desire for adventure, but also like I really wanted to understand um, education around the world. One of my projects in South Africa was to look at um, schools around Kruger Park and look at how they could meet their education standards. And at the time they were standard-based outcome or outcome-based education standards. So basically you had to be able to like design an experiment. Um, But all the standards were the same for every school across the country and schools looked vastly different in terms of what resources they had. And so we did our project basically like a couple miles outside the park. And we were basically trying to encourage using Kruger Park resources to help with these um, outcome-based learning in schools that don't have enough resources to even have walls in their classroom. And that for me was like sort of the awakening of my um, education desire and like working with kids and trying to understand the systems that we have here and the systems that they have there. So I ended up coming back to Elon and applying for a scholarship to study in South Africa for two more years. Um, I ended up getting it and I left in 2011 
and I studied um, environmental science again, getting my master's degree. And there I really started getting curious about the relationship between um, low income um, black communities in South Africa and climate change. And basically I studied how the government was handling um, sea level rise in the context of climate change. And I looked at communities and townships. Um, and then I also worked in townships after school and townships are a nice way of saying slums, but they're called townships because they are basically the government has to, has to give housing to all people um, because of the constitution that was created under Nelson Mandela. So there I really became curious about um, community development work, specifically around um, food security. And then I also was looking at essentially environmental racism and justice um, by looking at how communities in slums, which are black communities in South Africa um, were being treated in the context of climate change. And I looked at a community in an actual um, system created to catch water, a water catchment system. And these people were getting flooded pretty much for six months a year. Um, and so it was really eye-opening for me. And I worked with a lot of different youth programs there. When I got back to the States, I was like pretty unhappy with America. I was having a really hard time readjusting. So um, I applied pretty much everywhere else. Um, and I went to Nicaragua for a short time and looked at um, setting up garden programs in schools and working with kids to train them how to grow their own fruit food in an organic way that helped rebuild soil and ran exchange programs so that students in the U.S. could get a different perspective and also help and work alongside Nicaraguan kids. And then um, I came back to the States um, and was looking for a permanent job and they called me and I moved out to the Bay Area to continue running exchange programs and working in Ecuador and reforestation, work with kids, working in schools on building gardens and outdoor classrooms. And eventually I got burnt out on traveling and I wanted to like dig deeper into one school community. So I applied for my um, credential. I found the SF State program and I like the focus on social justice. So yeah, now I am a full-time teacher. And that's where you met Harold and I. <laughs> Swooped right uh, in. Yes. <laughs> yes. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> no sarcasm there at all. No, very serious. I think that's what made <laughs> you such a dynamic teacher is because you had the you had a global view of very salient racial separation and then you came back to America with that worldview um, and were able to apply it to into your community. Um, do you feel that that experience added to what you could offer to your students or uh, provided insights that your colleagues may not have been able to share with you? Yeah, I think it's done a lot for my teaching career. I mean, first of all, like I've heard from a lot of kids as I'm leaving my current school, like, oh, thank you so much for bringing 
um, your actual experience into the classroom. So I think having like hands-on environmental work uh, out in the world in different places and being able to like show them pictures of like the elephants that I was studying when I lived in Kruger and show them pictures of kids in Ecuador planting trees um, has been really helpful. And then I also think the perspective of like coming from a country like South Africa and living in a country where they're just way more um, forward about race. They have a lot more conversations about race and you know their civil rights movement was a lot sooner. Um, it happened in the last you know 20 years so they're still recovering from it just like we are and it is very much not over but I learned a lot more like language around race and how to ask questions and um, I think that's been really important but I also have tried not to make it seem like I try to avoid the white savior complex and when I tell kids like to travel I try to make sure that they're looking for like organizations where there's a local component and that's what I've tried to do when I've done work abroad is I've always like worked alongside people that are doing things in their community rather than come in and like pretend like I know the right solution. And so I think that's what makes me really good at working in schools too, is I don't like come in knowing the answer. I come in and just try to learn like what the community is about. Um, and I think that's an important lesson, especially for kids in the community I work that like, this isn't about solving other people's problems. It's about like understanding. Thank you so much for um, like that very nuanced explanation like of your origins and education, Chrissy. Um, I knew some of that, but actually I didn't know all of that. And so this is like, I mean, we already know you're amazing, right? But um, <laughs> like not knowing all of that, it just, it, it's, I'm a little speechless, but I'm gonna try to gather my words uh, to ask you this question because you are phenomenal. Um, what you were saying about South Africa made me think about uh, Tupac Shakur when, um, specifically when he was brutalized by Oakland police um, just for jaywalking. Um, and this was like back in the early 90s. And in the aftermath of that, when he sued um, the police department, I remember the, uh, the press conference where he was standing next to his attorney, uh, Jonathan Burroughs. And uh, he said, you know, I'm not gonna remember verbatim, but basically Tupac said that um, it, it was, uh, unconscionable for him to be stopped and asked for ID as if he was in South Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just drawing that connection. And so I guess my question for you is, um, based on your experience there in South Africa and your experiences here, um, particularly as an educator and, you know, <laughs> here um, on June 11th of 2020, uh, with everything going on in terms of social movements, um, and, under, and I know that you understand the, the history of apartheid in South Africa. Like, how do, you, how do you see yourself contributing to, I guess, liberation um, of people, especially young people of color in this country based on your experiences and uh, I would say your expertise, um, drawing those. Oh boy. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, <clears throat> here, I think my work with liberation has been mostly I think working with white kids is like where I see the work that I need to continue doing. I think that like I have been working with kids of, of color at my school, they're a minority, um, and 
you know, what I've been trying to do for them is just provide a space and like try to give some power to their to their voices. Um, this year, I worked really hard to build up also like better culture in classrooms by working with teachers. Um, I'm not sure that I have succeeded. Um, I think the biggest work in order to um, liberate kids of color is to educate their white peers um, so that they don't have to go through such like horrifying racism on a daily basis. And, you know, thank you for calling me an expert. I don't feel like I've definitely mistakes as a white teacher um, and white person. And I've made, you know, I've had to learn from them. Um, and I think that the biggest way I can contribute is just by bringing conversation about race to communities that are primarily white. Um, I think that that's like the biggest thing that I learned from South Africa is like being able to talk about it. And we are not in a culture and that's designed, you know, we're in a, a culture that's designed not to, we've been trained not to talk about race because, you know, talking about race means then that we're seeing the problem and having to do something about it. And I think that that's a problem. Um, we need to be a lot, we need to be giving kids better language to talk about race. And that's the way that we can liberate our kids of color is by, you know, helping their peers understand what they're going through and be better um, allies and co-conspirators. And, you know, I think at my school specifically, giving our kids of color a voice and a front seat and helping their teachers understand what they've been going through is part of that process. Um, but I think there won't be liberation of those kids until, you know, they're not getting on social media and seeing white kids saying the N-word or they're not coming into class and having, you know, their peers read the N-word in a book. And I think that's going to take a lot of work um, of teaching teachers and teaching students um, to understand that oppression in the U.S. and why racism is so ingrained in our institution and that we have to do the work to become anti-racist. And then it's not going to be perfect, just like you know, we as people are not perfect. So I think that's the best thing that I can continue to do for the kids. And that kind of, and that's beautiful. And that ties into my, my question about, you know, when you, along the lines of teachers teaching other teachers or co-unlearning together, um, yeah. I know that at your old school, you, I know you're in a transition between schools, but at your old school, they had a, a committee that was talking about equity, social justice, and practices in the classroom. And there's something, uh, I'm assuming along the same lines of the new school, where did, what was your role and kind of the structure of that group of colleagues at your old school? Uh, how is that, and how is it compared to what you see the structure of at your new school? to be and your role in it? Um, so at my old school, we had what was called a, a guiding coalition. It's basically like a group of teachers that was working on um, equity issues, both on the student level and on the teacher level and also the district level. So my first year, I was just trying to like understand the community and I saw like some problematic things happening during our rallies, which are like student body um, like meetings. Um, and 
I had noticed some like issues around, you know, just like hearing the N-word in the hallways and like kids, you know, hearing from my kids of color, things that were happening. And so I wanted to get involved um, and my principal put me on this uh, committee. And then I also ended up being on the district level committee this year and then also running our equity team, which is a lot of our uh, kids of color and white um, co-conspirators who work together to make the school more equitable. Um, our guiding coalition really worked with teachers and we ran some staff meetings and the goal was to have teachers evaluate their physical space first, which is a thing I picked up at my first school, which was a charter school in San Francisco. And, you know, part of our process as teachers was having to like present our classroom and have people ask questions and the classroom had to reflect the diversity of our students. And so I brought that to my old school and we did classroom walkthroughs and um, we created our own uh, like mission statements as teachers and our rooms had to reflect that. And then we also started looking at our syllabus and making sure our syllabus was more inclusive. And then we started diving deeper into, you know, how to handle racism when it presents itself in the classroom, how to create more culturally relevant um, curriculum so that, you know, all of our kids are better engaged and have the um, language to have conversations about race. And then my role this year shifted to really working a lot with the um, kids as well and hearing from the kids what they were going through, bringing that to the teacher meetings and district meetings and trying to create some policy around what happens when the N-word is used and how do we create what my friend has called like racism rehab <laughs> um, and like create a holistic way of um, ha teaching kids why we don't use that word and why it's harmful and teaching them how to change and repair. And then at my new school, um, they have an equity and inclusion coordinator. Um, I've had all my interviews on Zoom, so I don't know exactly what my role will be. I know that they're starting to work with teachers around um, having more equitable practices. And I think a lot of it is gonna come through uh, grading, like grading for equity, which my old school also was involved in. Um, so I don't know what my role will be yet. Um, I like to take time to like understand the community and what they have before I like insert myself and try to um, work with the challenges I'm seeing. So I'm kind of curious to see what my role will be at my new school, but I know that they are set up for um, having an equity and inclusion coordinator and they have like a plan for making their school more equitable. Um, and I think attracting more students of color and providing scholarships to get uh, multiple perspectives since my new school is a private school in a very affluent community. So I'm curious to see what my role will be. That's what I did at my old school. I know in some of our, you know, outside conversations, we were talking about how in the wake of the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, that work has actually gained more traction. I'm, I even hesitate to use the word traction, but um, gain more attention. And I believe you mentioned at some point that at your old school, they had communicated with you, or maybe it was the new one in regards to uh, more recognition of your work or 
trying to catalyze more of what was going on. Can you retell that story? Yeah, so I definitely think it's been um, something that has caught teachers' attentions to the importance of our equity work. Um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of teachers um, didn't understand like this push for, for equity. And so part of our last um, staff meeting was actually our kids of color um, requested a fishbowl. They wanted to talk about what they had been going through because the teachers didn't understand their urgency um, behind all this equity work. And I think as white people, like we can choose to be, you know, um, passive if we want to, because, you know, racism doesn't impact us on a daily basis. If we choose to ignore it, we can because of our privilege. And I think like, um, you know, it is a painful process for people to try to do work to be better and don't want to believe that they have a part in a racist system. And so I think that played into a lot of my you know, old, my work at my old school and trying to convince people it was important, or if people already knew it was important, they didn't really know where to start in changing or doing work. And so um, I think that, you know, we started to try to increase this urgency by having our students um, talk about the experiences they have on campus and hearing the N-word on campus and um, not feeling like the administration was, was doing anything, which is hard with ed code. And so um, that started to help like awaken teachers to what was going on. And that was our last staff meeting before going into um, shelter in place and kind of focusing on distance learning. And so I think now after the teachers have like marinated and hearing from the students and then see what's going on in the world, there's been this like awakening of wanting to do things and kind of connecting all of the work that we've been trying to do and seeing how important it is and you know specifically a lot of stuff has come out from our community of kids who posted videos saying the n-word um, on Instagram or Twitter um, there are a lot of them I've been hearing uh, kids have been <clears throat> sent more and more videos of different students at school using the n-word um, and so you know there was a lot of backlash somebody made the post go viral and I think people were like emailing the principal at one of the schools in the district and so now you know the district is trying to act and there's more importance being put on this um, like diversity committee for the district and I think there's a lot more momentum now for fixing it and it's a shame that you know we had to get to this point but I was telling my students the other day that you know because we're at a point in society where we're seeing all this um, as a movement and now it's like time for white people to act and there's pressure on everyone to act. I think it's like actually a really good time. Like we've set the groundwork and now people are seeing the importance and there's no way to ignore it anymore. Um, and I think that that is gonna be a tipping point for the community and I don't think it's gonna be easy. But I think that, you know, the structure now is set in place. And I think teachers that are ready to go are going to have the momentum to do better in their classroom. And teachers who weren't believers before are going to have to be believers now. And it's shifting the culture a lot at the school. And I think that's going to be a positive 
experience for hopefully our kids of color who've primarily been responsible for educating their peers, I think that's going to shift now. So it's an interesting time. I'm actually kind of disappointed I won't be there to help carry through the work, but it's been interesting to see this shift. I agree, because even at my school site as well, there's been more communication around supporting of that work. And I'm grateful and at the same time, very, it's bittersweet, mainly bitter, because it came at the wake of more murder and loss of life in order to get to this point. And I, I mean, I agree with you on that, um, like wholeheartedly. And at the same time, um, you know, as that quote says, I think a positive anything is better than a negative nothing. You know, mm. I think like mm. they're late than never. Um, and also, <clears throat> yeah, it is frustrating. I mean, and especially, I mean, from the perspective of a, a black educator, a black male educator mm -hmm. who has been in a similar position of, you know, having to uh, mitigate um, conflict with my black and brown students and, you know, particularly like a white colleague um, and really having to delve deep into conflict resolution and like try to mediate and all of that. Like it's, I get the frustration. And at the same time, um, I think that you know, we shouldn't hold on to that for too long. Um, I think that, you know, I think that anger uh, actually destroys us from the inside out, um, unless you can find a way to channel it into something positive to make a contribution to equity. You know, I, I feel like it's almost, um, it, it's almost like it's not worth it. Like Dick Gregory said, like whom the gods want to destroy, they first make mad. So it's just like, mm. I get it, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm human too. So I get frustrated also, but I try not to stay in that, you know, I try to try to find a way to, to channel that energy so that I, I can, you know, contribute to colleagues for, for equity, like in pursuit of, you know, true equality for my black and brown students and other students of color. But I do hear what both of you were saying. Like I've, I've been there more times than I care to remember. So. Yeah, that's my friend has been saying that actually, who's been like very engaged in the work with me. She's like, look, this is like the wave we've got to ride it. Like aside from what's happened in the past and how if they've been resistant or like how we've had to work within, you know, ed code, like it's time now. So she, it's like not time to be angry anymore. It's time to like go with the movement and push it forward. So I hear that and it's really good advice. <laughs> I think welcoming the, the welcoming the conversations finally, because isn't that, you know, in the end, even though it comes at a bitter front, I've been waiting for these conversations to happen in my community anyways. So that's the, another outcome will lead for more insight into how others got to, got to their point and use that energy to actually support the work that we've been trying to do all along. Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years? Um, is it oh. still teaching? Is it, uh, you know, a, a project? It can be as 
it can be as current as it can be as current as your just current projects trying to make it through COVID nineteen, or it can be as far as ten years. Chrissy, what's your five to ten year plan? Okay, and he I, wants the five to ten year plan. And how can we support you? Okay, there we go. <laughs> Thank you, Harold. Um, I don't know. That's tough. I've been like flirting with kind of stepping out of the classroom in the next ten years, doing some admin work. Um, or like district level work. Um, I think it's gonna depend. I'm starting a role in sustainability next. And so I'm curious um, to see how I like that and what that leads to. It will be not really administrative, but I will be looking at um, making the school more sustainable. And I think environmentalism and equity really go hand in hand. And so I'm curious to see how that will evolve, but I definitely see myself in some sort of leadership position in the future um, and hopefully kind of holding on to my environmental roots and still doing equity work because um, there will be there will be more to do, I'm sure, in 10 years. So, yeah, that's like kind of where I'm headed. I think that's beautiful because what I'm hearing is uh, not only being a leader but also that intersectionality of nourishing the mind and the body, which I love so much. Yeah, I read a really interesting article about environmentalism and racism and why they have to go hand in hand. And it like inspired me that I was going in the right direction. Um, so a lot of people don't see that connection. And like with all the work I've done, that's like the biggest thing that has happened for me is realizing that both of those things really go hand in hand. Um, and hopefully I will have some sort of position to use my power to help educate kids more about that intersectionality and also like um, help to improve the environment around them and to look at where we see communities of color. We also see um, huge environmental issues. And um, I think that there's a lot of potential there for leadership and change. So somewhere in there, it's a broad, broad answer, but it's hard to even know what I'm doing next week with coronavirus. <laughs> so. <laughs> so health has always been a concern, yeah. but even further is the uh, power in growing your own nourishment, because uh, we can only be as good as our body is functioning. And that's social emotional as well. What was, could you kind of explain um, like your experiences and the difference of growing up in the South in Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, and like going to school there and then becoming an educator. Well, you're an educator all over the planet, but I mean, what was the difference between, I would say K-12 in the state of Georgia and K-12 here in California, even though you know, you are a student there and you are an educator here. I'm just kind of interested in your take on things. Yeah, um, so I went to a private school. Um, a lot of, there are a lot of private schools in Atlanta and um, for better or for worse, they're really popular at the time. The public school I went to or was supposed to go to in my district, um, my parents didn't want me to go to they wanted to send me to private school and so i was in like a pretty big bubble just like the bubble i work in now 
except for there was a huge emphasis on like trying to understand um, and get out of that bubble. And so, you know, it was also a religious school, which, you know, I'm now uh, recovering from still going to a religious school. But I think like a lot of emphasis. What? <laughs> so that's hilarious. I went to a, a private um, Catholic Christian Brothers High School, so I kind of feel you. Um, yeah. I got. I got. <laughs> Anyways, please continue. <laughs> yeah. So I'm recovering Catholic, but I I think that the positive, uh, like a benefit from going to a religious school, was there's a huge emphasis on community service. And um, in Atlanta, there was a lot to do. There was a lot of different community service options. And so even though I was in this bubble in school and it was not very diverse, um, I was pushed outside of that bubble often. Um, and my dad was a doctor in Atlanta. So I spent a lot of time in different hospitals. I spent a lot of time doing service through my school and church. And I think like that taught me um, to look beyond, you know, this bubble I was in and try to understand the city of Atlanta. I would say that I don't think that my history education was very strong, which I also see like in the, in the um, suburbs here. Like, I think that it was still very white centric. Um, I did learn a lot more, I think, about the civil rights movement just because of living in Atlanta and we did not have a really strong education around like racism. Most of our education was rooted in religion and like, um, so I think that has contributed to my like, not surprise, but just like inability to relate sometimes to the kids in, in the suburbs out here. And maybe racism was a much bigger part of my life and I didn't like see it as much or you know, I, I wasn't seeing it in my friend group because we um, had a little bit more diversity, but like definitely it's something that I've been reflecting on. I want to thank you profusely. We both do. Um, we actually, we, we talk about this often. I, I'm going to give you a compliment. So just, uh, you know, mentally prepare, <laughs> buckle up buttercup. <laughs> um, Cassie and I talk about you often. We are so, um, we feel so fortunate so blessed um, that you are our friend and our colleague. Um, we hold you in the highest regards. Um, we want nothing but the best for you. And you definitely deserve uh, everything that, that life has to offer in a positive sense. Um, I am so grateful that I got to, to meet you, um, that we get to be friends. Um, I can't say enough about it or about you and we sing your praises often to our family and to our friends <laughs> um so i'm gonna just i'm gonna drop i'm gonna just leave it there back to the interview at hand um is there anything that you would like to say or that you would like to uh sort of conclude with uh considering your position your experiences once again your expertise um because oh our our show, um, at least in terms of the radio show, is definitely going to be going to Pescadero and the South Coast. Um, and so that's not just, you know, youth slash students um, and uh, adult educators, but actually just, you know, average everyday citizens. And so is there anything that you would like to say 
um, to them, um, any of them individual, any of those individual populations or the entire population. Um, is there a message you would like to leave us with? Please bless us with your brilliance. <laughs> My message is mostly for educators and, and adults and parents of just like not being afraid to, especially as white educators and hopefully someday I will be a parent, like not being afraid to look into and explore um, our role in racism in the country. And like, it's okay to ask questions. I think like a lot of times I've seen, and with myself too, like being afraid that you're gonna do the wrong thing or like try something new in the classroom and it's gonna fail, but like, that's okay. And that's how we learn. And so just like encouraging people to get involved in the dialogue and start asking questions and like find peers that you can safely talk to about stuff like this so that we can carry on the conversation um, past when these um, riots are, are quieting down, like we need to continue having these conversations. So just encouraging people, like it's not about being perfect and it's not about um, like being the best anti-racist activist. It's just about like learning and reflecting and it's not gonna feel comfortable all the time and that's okay. So I encourage you to sit in discomfort. I know I have and to keep trying to ask questions and understand and be um, the best kind of co-conspirator you can be. And in order to do that, you know, it starts, it can start anywhere. So I encourage people just to do what they can to understand um, their race and the influence that they've had in institutional racism and also like how they can be a better um, person. Ladies, gentlemen, and others, Chrissy Arangio. <laughs> your words and your message, it's something that we all need to hear and continue to do the work. And it's great even for us on the South Coast to hear what everyone, uh, what other educators are doing out there. Uh, being so isolated rurally, it's great to know that there are others in this struggle and upward battle, but we are not alone. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're listening to KPDO 89.3 Pescadero Radio. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Shields and Talbot Show, where our motto is of educators, by educators, for children. <laughs>